Hi, Acton. Hi, George. Happy uh, belated 2024. Oh, thank you. Welcome to the new year. It's almost February. <laughs> We're getting yeah. a slow start. We are. <laughs> We're trying. We're busy. Yeah. We're recovering from the holidays. And we're going to write a book this year. We are. See, if we announce it on the show, that means we have to we do have it. We have to do it. We okay. are in the process. We are. We worked on our introduction, and we got an outline. We sort of know where we're going. We sort of know where we're going. Yeah. Well, what are we talking about today, George? We're going to do some fiction. Excellent. We're going to talk about two novels. Well, today we're only going to talk about one, because we have way too much to say to talk about. <laughs> we always have way too much to say. <laughs> we don't even know if we can do this one in one episode. Yeah, we'll try. We'll try. We were going to do The Handmaid's Tale because that seems sort of obvious feminist mm-hmm. novel. And then, we, as described in the notes for the, in the homework mm-hmm. for the episode, we ran across this truly interesting defense of Lady Chatterley's Lover, which I read a bunch of times but had no memory of. And you'd never read. I'd never read because it's somewhat scandalous. <laughs> well, and to, and to hear it being defended as sort of this, you know, based redemptive sexuality was like, wow, that's not the common liberal take on that book. Right. So we had to go there. We got to do it. So first things first, we have both been heavily influenced by the reading lifestyle. Mm -hmm. Why do we think it is so important? I love this question. This is great. I think that reading, especially reading books that are at least 20 years old, preferably older, is the best defense against self-deception, pride, moral stagnation, and the temptation to bullshit yourself. Because reading, whether it's fiction or nonfiction, it forces you to confront your own ignorance, it stirs curiosity, it humbles you because you become more aware of how little you know of the vast complexity of the world, like how little experience of life you actually have. I'm going to quote what C.S. Lewis says about reading because it just captures this perfectly. It is a good rule, after reading a new book, never to allow yourself another new one till you have read an old one in between. Every age has its own outlook. It is especially good at seeing certain truths and especially liable to make certain mistakes. We all, therefore, need the books that will correct the characteristic mistakes of our own period, and that means the old books. Not, of course, that there is any magic about the past. People were no cleverer then than they are now. They made as many mistakes as we, but not the same mistakes. Two heads are better than one. Not because either is infallible, but because they're unlikely to go wrong in the same direction. So to read a book is really to be in conversation with another person. And because reading is really a dialogue and not a monologue, I write in the margins, always. <laughs> and that conversation can be transformative if you open yourself up to being changed. So you can read certain books just to confirm your biases, or you can read books that challenge and change you. And in some ways, it's easier to have your priors challenged by a book than by conversation with another person right in front of you live. Like you can set the book down and come back to it later. You can argue in the margins without hurting the author's feelings. Uh, You can be shocked or deeply moved in the privacy of your own living room or bedroom, but you can still learn to open up to this other person and to their ideas or their story. And sometimes when I read, I try on someone else's ideas for size, you know, and sometimes I might think an author is deeply flawed or even completely wrong, but my dad taught me to articulate an opponent's views to their own satisfaction first before critiquing them. And to do that, you have to get deep into their head and empathize. And there's nothing like reading a book to facilitate that. So I read for wisdom, I read for meaning, and I can only finish a book if I sense that my soul needs it somehow, you know, whether to eat it and metabolize it and make it part of me or whether to be able to shred it with integrity. So I read with appetite. 
at 16, I thought I'd give an example or two of like some of the early books that really Do grabbed it. me. Um, at 16, I pulled Tess of the D'Urbervilles off my father's bookshelf and I just devoured it. Like I would read it before calculus class in school. I was like, pulling it out <laughs> between calculus. classes. That's oh, much better. And that novel, it shocked me. It broke my heart. Like all of the male injustice against this innocent young woman. And then I took Lord of the Flies off my father's shelf and I was confronted with this, the root of evil in the human heart in a way I'd never encountered it before. And I had this vivid memory of sitting on the edge of my bed, reading the last few chapters with my heart racing in terror, like not knowing, is Ralph going to be killed? What's going to happen? <laughs> you know, really captured me. And then I picked up Anna Karenina when I was 17. I got partway into it and I realized that it was about a woman having an affair. And my conscience began to trouble me because I was afraid that Tolstoy would paint Anna in a totally sympathetic light and make her actions look worthy of imitation like a woman freeing herself from societal constraints and living her best life and because I thought that's what was going to happen I, I didn't want Tolstoy to make me question the value of marital fidelity like that was an untouchable thing for me so it's like Ooh. so I put the book down and I read it later as an adult and you know Tolstoy is actually no surprise he's very nuanced and brilliant and he shows the moral and the psychological and the social costs of Anna's affair and he paints her as worthy of compassion and pity since spoiler alert she jumps in front of a train but she's not worthy of imitation but I didn't know that at 17 though I did know enough to be aware of how a book can shape your moral intuitions and I think that's right like I think I was right to to take note of what my conscience was saying to me. The book will always age. be there. The <clears throat> book will wait. That's right. <laughs> and it did. And I came back to it. when I, I came back to it when I was ready, right? When I was capable of, of coping with it. Especially with fiction, like, you can give your heart over to an author and they can nudge you in different directions. Like, a good writer can shift your Overton window, you know, so that something you initially categorize as unthinkable becomes radical, or radical becomes acceptable, or acceptable becomes sensible or sensible becomes a good idea, or a good idea becomes mandatory or the new normal, right? And that nudging, it can go in the opposite direction too. It can push you from viewing something as normal or good into viewing it as unacceptable or even unthinkable, right? It doesn't do it all at once, but if it just nudges you over a little bit, you know, then you're a little more susceptible next time to be nudged over a little further, right? Like it can happen over the course of your life. So reading is definitely a moral enterprise. So I, I tend to read books that are recommended to me by people and sources I trust. Right now, moments ago, you gave me a stack of three things to bring home <laughs> to read. And I, I trust Writing you a book a is reading lots of books. That's right. <laughs> That's right. So right now, I'm reading A Secular Age, which I got from you. The Master and His Emissary, and both of those are philosophy and history combined. I'm reading Paradise Lost, along with my brother. That's an old book. I'm reading Dune, which is science fiction. Reading that out loud to my kids. I'm reading Flannery O'Connor's Prayer Journal. Ivan Illich's Gender, again, for the third time, because you can never get enough. Uh, a couple of books of Catholic theology and the memoirs of an English country vet called All Creatures Great and Small, which is so delightful. And of course, Lady Chatterley's Lover, which is the most sexually explicit book I've ever read, but there's a first time for everything. <laughs> so how about you? How about your reading life? And that is really a wonderful point about how reading books from different periods encourages humility about our sense of progress mm. and the supposed superiority of the present. Like, maybe, like, social media could be thought, like, the algorithm really is just, like, confirming all your biases. Yeah. It's like a little <laughs> bias confirmation machine. Yeah. So it makes me wonder how much of this progressive conviction that the past is just one homogenous bastion of oppressive sexism and racism 
has contributed to a de-emphasis on reading the literature of the past. Mm. I wasn't bothered by the sort of casual anti-Semitism, which is, you know, just pops up in, like, you know, All places these. in Lady Chatterley's Love Art. Like, you should be able to just sort of take something as a piece and know that it's not morally perfect any yeah. more than you are. Yeah, exactly. Right. I, I like, mean, like you would a person. Yeah. You can... Like you would a person, I guess. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I remember thinking that in school, like, because I read a lot for school. I mean, I went through this whole period in graduate school where I didn't really read at all outside of graduate school because really mm. I was, like, experiencing moral injury and I didn't know that that was what's happening. Oh. So I went through the whole, like, blank space in my, huh. in my sort of reading and then I, like, rediscovered reading for pleasure after I exited wow. grad school. You said moral injury? Yeah, because I was just, like, trapped by... I, I mean, I really just kind of knew that a lot of stuff we were supposed to take seriously in grad school was just... My gut instinct just told me it was bullshit. And I didn't know how to be in grad school and have that happen. And eventually when I left, that was easy. It was like, oh, I don't do that anymore. Oh, wow. (laughs) (laughs) So, but in school, like as a younger kid, like before college, I remember thinking that various books assigned could be boring or irrelevant, but I was never, ever taught. And I never in like picked up any sensation that the present was inherently superior to the past. Mm. Like there was never a sense that you could just discard it because it was... You know, because we were better. There was never that. It was still, there was just a automatic assumed interest in that great things had been written and it, it made you greater to read them. It's wonderful. And so I think that that's an essential part of self-formation, to realize that, in fact, if you are anything, what you are is indebted to the past. Yes. Because entire lifetimes have come and gone before you even thought a thought or learned to read a letter on a page. Absolutely. It's, it's very... The perspective that the... <laughs> That the that a reverence for the past, or even just a curiosity for the past, yes. inspires, is formational and important. So when you talk about how it is often easier to be challenged by a book than a person, it really makes me think that one of the reasons I valued reading as a child and a young adult was because of the privacy. The imagination mm. is a private space. Mm. And I think that children really benefit from the opportunity that reading provides to try on ideas, to have experiences totally on their own. So true. I really enjoyed reading. I enjoyed that quiet privacy. And I had friends that enjoyed it too. And often I would have a friend over and we would read together. Like we'd be reading different books in the same room. Oh, and we could just do that for hours. Yeah. And everyone's happy. We would go to the library, check yeah. out all these books and come back and just read them. Oh, that's great. <laughs> yeah. Just... What a contrast. Like a bunch of kids all being together on their phones, like together, but separate versus like being together but reading books. Yeah. It's a very different It's a very of... different kind of thing. It's absolutely different for lots of reasons, mm. which I'm about to uh, yeah, wax eloquent on here. <laughs> so, obviously, historically, this kind of childhood where kids have a lot of leisure time is perhaps very new. And maybe now we're at the, in a position to see that each cohort of this post-industrial age that we share has its own specific ways of passing the time of childhood and that reading was just sort of kind of initiation mm. into that. And, mm. in fact... Literature written for children was an innovation. Like, it's not... There didn't used to be... You just used to read whatever. I mean, that's why, like, six-year-olds would study Virgil. I mean, there was no children's literature. I mean, it was just... (laughs) You you read what you read. You read what was there, right? Yeah. So I'm not dismissing the element of consumerism involved, even in, you know, children reading. But it it seems nonetheless clear that a child in front of a pile of books and a child in front of an internet-connected screen is going to have a very different experience. Especially as it relates to two fundamental aspects of moral growth. Readiness and privacy. Hmm. Books are known quantities, especially if we are passing books down from our own childhood or young adulthood to our children. 
the internet is all unknown because it's all just current content. And the only way its content can really be vetted is for an adult to be in the same room. And of course, that means that the child cannot explore on her own. You're right. Or that the child will be left to do so, to explore on her own at her own peril. So you lose those two things. You lose that safe trade-off. And it's worth mentioning that so many parents are now destroying the privacy of their own children by making their children the subject of internet content. You're right. So the entire orientation of a generation is shifting away from narrative or story, which is stuff you get from novels, even bad I mean, I read a lot of junk. I read a lot of, like, you know, Nancy Drew and, like, things, like, way below my reading level. Sure. Like, I read a lot of... But it was still narrative. It was still... Yeah. It still had a lot in common with literature in the sense of... It, because it came from the same river. So we've got an entire generation moving away from narrative or story with, with, with its built-in focus on moral exposure, challenge, formation, mm-hmm. toward this very vague notion of content that actually has no meaning outside of how consumed it is. That's right. literally the meaning of it, right? And then being consumed becomes the motivation. There was this recent survey. They, they interviewed people in Gen Z and some corresponding adults who are not in Gen Z. So Gen Z is people born between 97 and 2012. And 60% of the respondents in Gen Z said they would take the job of social media influencer over their current gig. And I mean, <laughs> and social media influencer is just like the word content. It like, it means nothing other than like the sharing of what? Like what? What yourself? Well, they imagine. Like, they imagine that. Like I mean, in- influencer. That's real to to them because that it is. I mean, I guess it is real in the sense that people do it. People make their. I mean, they're consuming. You know, your most frequent thought becomes your most present reality. So that's real to them because they see it all the time. Yeah. They see these people getting watched, and people do make money at it. But, but it's I like mean, producing content for people to consume. But it's like. What what is the content? It's like plug in whatever you want. Well, I mean that's the, that's why it's such, so it's such an interesting question because it forces you to confront the question of what does spending your attention in front of a book do to you versus mm. spending your attention in front of a screen do to you? Like we, I don't even think we have the language. We're only now developing the ability to ask these questions because only now are we seeing what these harms are because. It's so funny, too, because even the whole literacy discussion about, like, reading levels and how, you know, defunct most public schools are about teaching children how to read, which is another whole sad subject. But even that is geared towards this just basic, you know, literacy as a tool of being a functional adult. It's not geared towards the reason you learn to read is so that you can spend time with books and have and transform your moral character. We don't even know what we've lost because we're not really we're not really ready to confront mm. what this change means between away from like towards this content internet substance as I will say later. Wow. So finally I want to make a point about since this book <clears throat> is about sex a lot of it and was well it's not real I mean it is about sex but it's about the significance of sex but because it was such a focus of you know it's obscenity trial and all that I want to make a specific point about sexual awakening when it comes to reading. Mm. And I feel like because of the privacy that reading offers, because parents can choose, and because parents can re- choose to restrict or not certain books, this sounds like our parents were not big book censorers. No, mine weren't. So because a child is going, and because a child is going to be limited by her own reading comprehension or her experience, these are some built-in safeguards 
when it comes to letting children explore yeah. content, even sexual content, mm-hmm. in novels. Right. And I guess, and this is one way I can sort of like be like, I'm a liberal, I'm a liberal. <laughs> because I actually think that's real. it's generally, this kind of exploration is really healthy. I feel like kids need to experience that gap between themselves and adulthood. Mm-hmm. And reading a few racy scenes in a vampire novel, for me it was Anne Rice's... Um, it wasn't Interview with the Vampire. I didn't read that <laughs> series, but The Mummy. Oh. That was, like, the book. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. And, I mean, it's, like, just basically, like, you know... It's it's a book written for adult entertainment with some soft porny stuff in it. You yeah. know, it's fine. It's yeah. just... Yeah. You know. So, reading a few racy scenes in a, in a vampire novel or historical romance, it seems to me like a great way to experience that... To place yourself on the continuum of, like, do I understand this? Am I ready for this? What does this mean? What do I feel? Like, you can have all those feelings, and it's in the privacy of your own brain. Yes. It's clearly much better than the situation we have now. Yeah. Where, I mean, preteens are commonly exposed to the kind of violent pornography you and I have never, ever seen. Right. And never will see. And now, there's actually statistics now that that are demonstrating that one of the growing areas of sex crime is... Child on child <gasps> abuse. No. Yeah, because of this exposure to porn. Oh. Yeah, oh, like under sixteens oh. or under eighteens abusing other children because oh, of these images. I've seen this yeah, yeah. Oh god. Absolutely, just... like startlingly. We're at the point where I think adults are beginning to realize that the internet is not a place or a medium. Mm. It's a substance, mm. because it's a substance in the way that it affects your brain. It affects your behavior. It changes your attention. It changes your moral formation. Yeah. And it's a substance that's just not safe for children. Yeah. I mean, arguably, it's not great for adults either. And I'm in a long-term battle, basically, to wrestle my attention back from it. I have quit using my phone in the morning. Wow. The whole morning. Like, I mean, I will check to see if I have, like, texts. Because for me, communicating with people is an approved use of the phone. Yeah. But I will not read I will not scroll in the yeah. morning. Like no YouTube, no Substack. Yeah. None of that. That's great. So like in bed, you can either get out of bed, stay in bed and sleep, or read a book. Grab a book. Yes. Those yeah. are the options. But the phone is not an option anymore. Right. You don't wake up and be like, oh let me look. Right, right. Scrolling. Right. Right. And I think even just distinguishing between reading versus scrolling. Or communicating with someone versus scrolling. Like scrolling is you know, the new fake reading of that we all do on our phone. Like, it doesn't count. And even <laughs> reading on a Kindle, I think they've demonstrated, you tend to recall less than you do if you read the book in physical paper. I'm not surprised. I'm not surprised, yeah. but I'm sort of devastated, because if you're Ooh. going on a long trip, a Kindle is so much more convenient. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> I really just want to quit my phone. Like, in an ideal world, in an ideal world, I would only use my phone to communicate with other people. It would just be a phone. It would just be a phone. <laughs> Which is ironically, phone phone it, it, which that. is ironically, and it's so funny. This is this is a trend. This is totally a trend. Every person who creates something, a tool for the internet, thinks it's going to be used for the opposite of what it comes to be used as. Because Mark Zuckerberg, you know the whole like we're going to connect the world. Facebook doesn't connect the world. Give me a break, right? And Steve Jobs, when he did when he did the first iPhone launch, he believed he still believed when he made when he released the iPhone that the main use of the iPhone would be the phone. Like, he didn't, even he didn't see that, you know what I mean? Like, we can't anticipate this because we don't, we can't anticipate the things, the effect these have on our brains. And so at least, though, 
adults who are old enough to have grown up without the internet, we have something to fall back on. Like, my struggle against my phone is because I know what my intention used to be before it was there. Like, I know I have a state of mind that I can compare. And so I can't bear to think what my inner life would have been had I grown up scrolling instead of reading. And that's what these kids are doing. Kids are growing up scrolling. I mean, what that means is there's a whole... There's a whole self that, that they will never know of themselves. Yeah. Because once childhood passes, you can't get it back when you're so malleable and right, formable. Right, right. When you could have all this sort of imaginative privacy and encounter with things and changing yourself and questioning and all of that, which we both had sort of in the privacy of our own rooms with interesting books and challenging books and perhaps even racy books. Like, you know, children, you know, you grow out of that, you miss it, you don't have it. It's going to swing back. It has to. But the question is, how desperate will things get? And, of course, and, and one of this, this does make me sound like a liberal, is that there's going to be a huge class impact I was just in, how that, yeah. in how that swing back is... That's right. Who, who benefits and who doesn't. That's right. It'll be the upper class people who are going to be curating their children's li- stack of library books, which is what I do. Like, that's... Right. I don't consider myself upper class, but, like... I, you know, I make sure my kids get stacks of books from the library and they don't have phones, right? Like, that's what we do. Right. But, right, that'll come to be like, oh, the upper class. Well, it'll be like, when you see a kid with a phone in their hand, it will be a marker of... The way that, like, cigarettes became, yes. like, a, oh. It will oh, be, they're oh. they're smoking. Oh, those they're pe- scrolling. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, it'll become a marker of unfortunate... I, I feel like we're a minute away from there. I think you're absolutely right. And, and, and it already has happened at the super elite sort of, level. Like, the, the yeah. parents of children who work in Silicon yeah. Valley who design these exactly. devices don't let their children anywhere near them. They send right. them to the outdoor kindergartens, yeah. the outdoor preschool or whatever. Right. You know, those places where they don't even have buildings, yeah. Yeah. where they have to, like, run around when it's cold. You know how, you know, people used to be able to smoke in restaurants and it was, oh, no smoke inside the restaurant? We, when will we have, like, no phone restaurants? Like, no scrolling <laughs> No right? Like, you want to look at your phone, you go outside. Like, it's, I wonder if it's going to be, like, stigmatized like that. Like, <laughs> I just well, wonder, you know? But stigma is what makes change. That is. And right? I think that would be good, but but it also shows, like, to the degree that, like, smoking is addictive and it harms yes, you. that's why I say it's Scrolling like a substance. is addictive and it harms you. It's a substance. And it's like, who, who will be the lucky ones who can, like, disconnect from that and stop cold turkey or go halvesies or, you know, find a way to moderate so that it's not, like... Chewing, and there's a difference between a substance which is screwing up your lungs and a substance which is screwing up your attention, your capacity to relate with other people, your your understanding of reality. Like the stakes are way bigger with a phone than like potentially shortening your life by a few years. It's like changing the nature of your life. It's just huge stakes. It's like existential cigarettes. <laughs> existential cigarettes. <laughs> Like it's like you get relationship cancer from them instead mm. of lung cancer. Ooh, oh, Ugh. that's really sad. That's that's low, but it's like it's 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 funny because like you think about how there was so much emphasis in the last say and before before this period, which we could call like I think the full recognition of the dystopia. I mean, I think the children watching porn is like the 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 sort of you know, moment where the flag has been planted and people are going to rally. Yes. I feel like that is, once that penetrates fully, Yeah, I feel like that will be, their, a turning point is in progress. But prior to that, there really was this emphasis on, you know, the overcoming the digital divide, how it was felt that, like, 
you know, oh. the, the, the most important thing was to make sure that all children had access to the benefits of the increasingly, you know, digital world. And wow, I think we really got that one wrong. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's kind of like you talked about before about like the doctor's ads for cigarettes, like... I'm a doctor and I smoke camels, you know, (laughs) it's like, oh man. (laughs) And I mean, I think it's easy to say at the end of the day, the drive behind that was mostly sales is money. Those doctors were paid to endorse those cigarettes. And I think, and there's certainly a lot of people who benefited. Like if you say every child in, in school needs a screen, then someone at the end of the day is taxpayers are writing a check to that company that is getting those screens there. I told you, I had my former neighbor who taught kindergarten here in the public school system, and they had the whole, like, at the center of the blackboard is a giant screen where they do attendance. It's, like, one of those smart screens or whatever. That, and that's just, like, mandatory. Gross. And they have, like, a thing where they have, like, tablets, and, like, this is kindergarten. I can't imagine no. that. Like, it's, like... No, no. In my kids' school bans phone use entirely. Yeah, like well, through I mean, how did that even not be a thing? I mean, and, then you, and, people, and people tell me, oh, it's because the parents they want to like they need to contact their children. I'm like, right, seriously, yeah, yeah. If you want to you know contact why? your children during school, you need to be homeschooling them. No, well, it's because they're afraid of like school shootings. Like it's because parents are freaked out. Like, but what if something happens? Oh, you know, god. which is a whole other problem. Oh but, my god. Yeah. Yeah. Oh man. Okay. Yeah. Well, on that note. <laughs> on that note. <laughs> Oof. Give us this elevator pitch on why we're doing this, why we're reading these books. All right, so we decided to read D.H. Lawrence's Lady Chatter's Lover alongside Margaret Atwood's The Handmaid's Tale because they're both stories about sex and freedom, especially as regards women. We're just pretty much going to talk about Lawrence today. But So Lady Chatterley's Lover, which is Lawrence's last novel, was published privately in 1928 in Italy and in 1929 in France. Because of its explicit accounts of sexual intercourse, the unexpurgated book was banned in many countries, including the UK, the US, and Canada. In 1959, Penguin Books, a UK publisher, published the complete text and was taken to court by the British government for violating the Obscene Publications Act of 1959. Yet the publisher prevailed, and predictably, the book's sales skyrocketed. So my elevator pitch for this is this book is truly at the intersection of all our continuing conflicts about sex in culture. What does sex signify and how should we talk about it in society and represent it in art? Uh, my elevator pitch is the novel is exploring what sex means, like how seriously should we take it, what happens to us when we take it lightly, and what does serious sex look like between a man and a woman. And for those who have not yet done their homework, hopefully you'll, you'll do so after hearing this, uh, we'll give a little summary or setup of the plot so you know who we're talking about and when we're quoting who's talking. The female protagonist is the lovely Connie Reed, who's from an upper middle class bohemian English family. And she marries the aristocrat Clifford Chatterley, who's shipped off to fight in the First World War after a one month honeymoon. And he returns home shattered. He's paralyzed from the legs down and he's impotent. And Clifford turns to the life of the mind since his body is broken and he ends up becoming a successful writer. And so their mansion is always full of these chatty intellectuals and will include some of their conversations in the quotes. And Clifford also becomes obsessed with the coal mine on his land and the mechanics of it. So there's this whole kind of industrial era emphasis in the story. But there's a lot of distance between Connie and Clifford physically and emotionally. 
and she becomes weary of the endless words. She's frightened by the grotesque nature of the mining town that's near them and the way that it has dehumanized the people in the countryside. And she's living this really lonely life, pretty meaningless. And at one point, Clifford suggests to her that she should you know, just go have a brief affair and get pregnant by another man so they can raise the child as their own. He says to her, well, we ought to be able to arrange this sex thing as we arrange going to the dentist, <laughs> which just shows how utterly disconnected he is from her. But Connie does begin to feel how much she would like to have a child and how much she wants to be loved and touched. And at one point, you know, she's kind of looking at herself naked in the mirror and, you know, kind of self-examining. And she describes her body as going meaningless through neglect and denial. And she feels like she's going old at 27. And at, it's at that point that she meets the gamekeeper, Oliver Mellers, who lives in a cottage in the wood that's on their property. And the two of them begin a rather hesitant, surprising, and yet deeply intimate love affair in which Connie does indeed get pregnant. And many of their intimate encounters are described in extensive detail, and that's what got the book labeled as obscene. Even though Lawrence always insisted his book was not pornographic, he wrote, anybody who calls my novel a dirty sexual novel is a liar. And it'll infuriate mean people, but it'll surely soothe decent ones. <laughs> hmm. um, and I'll wrap up the summary here by quoting from the novel's introduction. This is a novel in which everything is symbolic, in which every bush burns which is a reference to God's presence to Moses in the burning bush, and which in itself finally forms one great symbol so that one can easily remember it as one remembers a picture. In the background of this picture, black machinery looms cruelly against a darkening sky. In the foreground, hemmed in and yet separate, stands a green wood. In the wood, two naked human beings dance. Mm. Okay, women, sex, and freedom. So this is from pretty much the beginning of the book. Introducing Connie and her upbringing and her milieu. Mm -hmm. For, of course, being a girl, one's whole dignity and meaning in life consisted in the achievement of an absolute, a perfect, a pure and noble freedom. What else did a girl's life mean? To shake off the old and sordid connections and subjections. And however one might sentimentalize it, this sex business was one of the most ancient, sordid connections and subjections. Poets who glorified it were mostly men. Women had always known there was something better, something higher, and now they knew it more definitively than ever. The beautiful, pure freedom of a woman was infinitely more wonderful than any sexual love. The only unfortunate thing was that men lagged so far behind women in the matter. They insisted on the sex thing like dogs. Both sisters had had their love experience by the time the war came, and they were hurried home. Neither was ever in love with, the, with a young man unless he and she were verbally very near, that is, unless they were profoundly interested, talking to one another. The paradisal promise, thou shalt have men to talk to, had never been uttered. It was fulfilled before they knew what a promise it was. <laughs> <laughs> so this is the setup for the whole novel. The meaning of sexual intercourse is defined quite literally against female freedom. Mm -hmm. uh, here's another quote. The sisters nearly succumbed to the strange male power, but quickly they recovered themselves took the sex thrill as a sensation, and remained free. <laughs> this is striking because it seems an odd combo of modern and unmodern. Mm. Modern in the emphasis on freedom, but distinctly retro in that it connects sexual feeling with a kind of soul binding, mm. which is avoided if you just take sex as sensation, or as we might say now, pleasure. Mm. The men, both of whom are killed off by the war, this is Connie and her sister, 
so these men they're in love with, they're both killed off by the war, just in a single sentence, which is very World War One, because yeah. lots of people died in single sentences. Mm. In gratitude to the woman for the sex experience, let their souls go out to her. Mm. So this is like, you know, men are more committed to it, and the woman is the one conflicted. Mm. Right? So the setup here is the concept of female freedom and the carnage of the war is destroying what the book sets up as the apotheosis of human connection. Sex that creates a bond that overcomes or substitutes for this desire for freedom. Mm. And it's certainly framed more as in this question haunts women because it's women who are just discovering right this new promise of thou shalt help men have men to talk, talk to, to. <laughs> yeah and the book will gradually get us there but in the form of this adulterous relationship between connie and the groundskeeper mellers who will distinctly not be doing a lot of talking at right. least initially mm-hmm. so the events of the novel are in direct challenge to what we still recognize nearly a century later the values of individual freedom right yeah, prior to reading the book, when all I knew about it was that it featured an affair between an aristocratic woman and a gamekeeper, I assumed that the story would be framed such that the woman was pure or puritanical in some way, like repressed or sexless, and that the affair would be like her first real experience of pleasure. But that is not at all the book's premise. So I was just surprised right out from the gate. Like, as you read it, it shows Connie and her sister having casual sex with men as a way of like throwing them a bone, like keeping the baby happy with a little treat. You know, and far from being prim about it, and I mean, you know, to be prim means you're taking sex seriously because you're seriously afraid of it. You know, they almost roll their eyes over the sex thing, as they call it. And in Connie's self-reflection, she says, a woman could take a man without really giving herself away. Well, certainly she could take him without giving herself into his power. Rather, she could use this sex thing to have power over him. You know, so Lawrence is starting this story with a woman who intentionally holds her heart and soul back from the man she's sleeping with as a way of maintaining power over him, of keeping herself for herself and not forming a true bond. Like, she only wants these boys to captivate her mind through conversation, but she utterly refuses to be vulnerable to them on an existential and physical level. Like, that is not at all the kind of woman I assumed the novel would be about. Hmm. So I was just very surprised from the get-go. So Connie has already had affairs. She's already been deflowered physically but not emotionally. And she considers that emotional distance as the meaning of her life, like a form of dignity, a pure and noble freedom to remain unattached. So it's not a tale of a sexually innocent woman of fidelity being corrupted by adultery or learning to express her individuality and freedom through promiscuity. Like, that's the starting point. It's not the end point, you know? And so it's about a woman who has been engaging in sex in an individualistic, self-preserving manner, learning to let go to be overcome, to be swept up into a personal bond with a man through sex, such that any talk of subjection or power eventually becomes ridiculous. Like, it's it's a bond of such depth that words are not only insufficient, they might even get in the way of it or ruin it. And she learns to find the meaning of her life in attachment and her dignity in surrender to tenderness. So what I love about this presentation is that it really destroys the banal, politicized, culture war discussion about sex, and in particular, female pleasure, <laughs> that we mistake for genuine inquiry. And that's partly reflected in, like, your assumptions about what... Yeah. Or even with Anna Karenina, that whole idea that the two poles are approving of deviance or reaffirming purity only. And so see how, like, real art is much more complicated oh, than that. Yeah. It's much more nuanced, because people are much more nuanced. Mm-hmm. We're trapped in this sort of really banal space where we can't... We're arguing about, you know, self-satisfaction and pleasure. And it's... 
we're missing the real heart of the of the matter, which is there's nothing wrong with pleasure. It's just not in itself sufficient. Right. So to the extent that conservatives take out their territory purely in opposition to liberal hedonism, they are wrong. <laughs> Similarly, to the extent that liberals stake out pleasure as the purpose of sex, and thus pleasure as a justification for freedom, they too are wrong. Yeah. So there's no doubt that the way this novel portrays sex is in many ways romanticized and idealized. And really, one of the things that sticks out to me, and this is probably because it was written by a man, and I don't think he would have known the answers to these questions. There is very little explanation, for example, as to why Connie can have all this sex and never get pregnant. Yeah, I wondered that too. <laughs> Indeed, she doesn't even seem to worry about it. And that seemed odd to me. I, I didn't. I mean, that. that just seems fake. I mean, maybe yeah. that maybe that's a, a an area where like that doesn't. The romanticization of early of early twentieth century birth control just doesn't capture Lawrence's imagination on right. some level. It's like th- it needed to be this way for the sake of the story he was telling, but it didn't ring true to life that she could have all these affairs, not worry about pregnant, and not not worry about getting pregnant, and not get pregnant. <laughs> right. So, but the value of the portrayal isn't in its historical accuracy. Right. I, I I feel still persuaded to take the idealization seriously. Mm-hmm. Because I think that Lawrence is correct about what is at stake. Yeah. How we think about sex, how we have sex, how we make babies, is not just a technical issue, but it's really an essential measure of, of our cultural values. Absolutely. Although I, I have to say, though, that I think Connie, in the beginning of the novel, actually likes her life with Clifford. She gets a lot of... She does She gets beginning. a lot of value out of <clears throat> being his caretaker. She's happy at the beginning, amazingly. Yeah. And it's, it's very maternal, right? It's like right, she's, she's, she's got the separation him. between her sort of sexual life, to the extent that we could call it that, you know, with these various affairs she has, and her maternal life in the sense that she's she has to take care of... I mean, she, because Clifford is so physically disabled, yeah. she tends to him like the way one would tend to a, a child. Right. Like all that intimate care that she has to give him right. and, and completely desexualized. That's right. So it is very... Yeah. And she finds that fulfilling for a while. She does. But then eventually a nurse comes to replace her. And oh, I that's she, way after, though. That's oh, when, that that's when she's... After. That's when... Uh, yeah. She, she already started that's the when, affair by then? Mm-hmm. Okay. That's when she, like, loses interest in that because she's... Yeah. She's reoriented her priorities. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There's this brokenness to their culture that, I guess, initially Connie thinks she can sort of navigate by caring for Clifford and managing her household to the extent that she does that. I mean, mm-hmm. she she gives orders, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, she has a degree of fulfillment, and she's happy for a while, and she helps him to stimulate his conversation and thinking so that he can write his books, and she feels useful to him in that way, and that brings value to her life for a while. But then at some point, sort of the gloss wears off, and she's recognizing, this is not... Is this it? She kind of comes to the, is this all... Well, and, and the whole thing is in the context of, you know, the war killed the man she was in love with as a young younger woman. Yeah. I mean, so many people are dead. Clifford himself is kind of half dead. dead. I mean, he's suffered a severe physical injury. This idea that you could, like, retreat into your body, into your physical self, nothing about the culture is favoring that. Right. And so maybe that's where all of this negativity because over and over there's all these conversations about this sort of complete loss of interest and faith in corporal existence right yeah i think you're right probably the war had an immense amount to do with that i hadn't thought of it but with so many people dying so many young people dying 
Yeah, right? no, it wipes out a whole generation. The, the vulnerability of the body would be like, oh my gosh. I mean, think of all the women who couldn't marry because of the First World War. That was a real, that was a real thing. All right, so yeah. speaking of conversations about the body, yeah. big fertility is not as new as you think. <laughs> <laughs> so we're going to plunk ourselves in this conversation at the Chatterley's mansion. Olive was reading a book about the future when babies would be bred in bottles and women would be immunized. Jolly good thing, too, she said. Then a woman can live her own life. Strange ways wanted children, and she didn't. How'd you like to be immunized? Winterslow asked her with an ugly smile. I hope I am, naturally, she said. Anyhow, the future's going to have more sense, and a woman needn't be d- dragged down by her functions. Perhaps she'll float off into space altogether, said Dukes. I do think s- sufficient civilization ought to eliminate a lot of the physical disabilities, said Clifford. All the love business, for example, might just as well go. I supposed it would if we could breed babies in bottles. No, cried Olive. That might leave all the more room for fun. So long as you can forget your body, you are happy, said Lady Brennerly. And the moment you begin to be aware of your body, you are wretched. So if civilization is any good, it has to help us forget our bodies, and then time passes happily without our knowing it. Yeah. Holy cow, right? A little too on the nose for modernity. Like, it's so modern. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so this scene is just a short portion of a longer conversation, which is just one of many like this in the novel, where you have smart people engaging in light banter over grave matters. And I think part of what Lawrence is critiquing through Connie's perspective, since she's usually the observer rather than the participant in these conversations is not just the content of what the intellectuals are saying, it's the way they talk about it. I think he's critiquing their flippancy and he's showing that being clever, being funny, even being brilliant is not the same thing as being wise. You know, there's this proverb that says, even a fool when he keeps silent is considered wise. <laughs> when he closes his lips, he's considered prudent. And I thought of that, you know, during this scene and, and all the other scenes where Connie is silently present, watching the intelligentsia enjoy their own breezy cleverness in this kind of masturbatory way. Mm. And she isn't necessarily wiser than they are yet, but she's beginning to recognize that they are fools, that they're somehow avoiding reality rather than making contact with it or conforming themselves to it. And they do that by playing with words. And I think the particular form of reality avoidance these people are engaging in is an orientation towards the future in which technologies which haven't been invented yet will solve ancient human problems, particularly around love, sex, and pregnancy. So the savior they name is civilization, but what they really mean is technology, right? Like babies bred in bottles, an anti-fertility vaccine. When I use and hear the word civilization, I'm thinking of two things, usually religion and culture, you know, which to quote our favorite internet talking head, John Verveke, are psychotechnologies. They're thought patterns and behavioral practices that bring wisdom and communal flourishing. So psychotechnology is a way of changing yourself and your relationship to the world. It's a way of cultivating the art of being human and of being human in community rather than brute force changing the world or the body to suit your desires. Techne is the Greek word for art, for skill. It's like practical knowledge. So psychotechne is practical knowledge of the soul. But the people having this conversation are not interested in that. They're looking to some imagined future where techne will be used to help them forget their own bodies, which is the opposite of self-knowledge. You know, instead of cultivating relational wisdom now, they're entrusting their happiness and freedom to future inventions. You know, when Lady Brennerly says, if civilization is any good, it will help us to forget our bodies. I think that's a suicidal definition of civilization. Like if a people en masse forgets their bodies, they will probably cease to exist within a few generations because 
the reproductive self-sustaining family, like the source of love and the source of apprenticeship and being a person is a necessarily embodied thing. Like the life of the family is all about touch and tenderness and nurture and protection of the body. You know, the family is about the cultivation of home. So to forget the body is to perpetrate domicide, to kill the home. And I don't really want to contemplate what a civilization of relationally homeless individuals who are bred in bottles would look like, but whatever it would be, it wouldn't be good. So if it's true that the moment you begin to be aware of your body, you are wretched, then instead of using technology to forget your body or change your body, you should use some form of psychotechnology to experience at one or peace with your body. You know, do the psychological work, change your mode of interpretation, don't run away. I just, I fundamentally disagree with this body escapism. I feel like this all, it's all a specter of the, of the, of the war and just the changing, the beginning, the awakening to the fact that man is capable of destroying, poisoning the landscape Mm. around him at scale. Mm. That there's that wonderful scene where they go to the part of the wood where Clifford's father, like, cut it all down so it could it could be wood in the trenches that's That's such an image because i've you know i know a lot about world war one but like i never thought of the symbol of the destruction of world war one as the forest as the missing forest where they got that wood like i never thought about that yeah it's such a great image such a great visual image for the destructiveness of the war yes because it's 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 destroying of the earth i mean obviously we know how many millions of people were killed and under what conditions they fought, all horrid. But to see it also as a mark on the landscape, mm. the way, the way that you see a mine, like a war, can have it can scar the landscape because you're using yes. resources, not to like create houses or I mean, which is right. equally potentially at risk of, you know, losing an equilibrium. But you cut down all those trees so you could then use them to cut down all those men. Right. Like a really like oh, like yeah. you saw the trees and the men like the. A forest-sized swath of population was destroyed in the war. So a really powerful image for that. So this body escapism Mm -hmm. to me, like, I actually feel like a lot of pity for these characters, especially for Clifford, because it's like Uh, they're they're put here and they're, these are the people who should feel like they're in control of their society. They sh- yeah. These are the people They're who are like, 20s, these are the technologists. Smart, yeah. These are the privileged, <laughs> as we would say, elite <laughs> of their time. They should feel in control. And the best they can muster is, you know, let's all like take drugs and puff off like, you know, curls yeah. of smoke. And You're so- right. I should have more compassion for that. I, I come down pretty harshly on that. But you're right. It, it, seeing it in light of the war makes me a lot more merciful to them. <laughs> and as soon as I read the babies thing, I was like, I just went right back and looked up when Brave New World was issued because I'd reread mm-hmm. I'd reread that in, like in the last year. So like basically, if I haven't reread it in the last five years, I have no memory of it, which is not great. Because <laughs> babies really are bred in outside wombs, and they're like technologically made in Brave New World. Nineteen thirty-two was the year mm-hmm. of publication. Huxley wrote it the year before, so I was actually really surprised to find the discussion of making babies in bottles on the lips of these characters who are basically a century old now. Yeah. I mean, just a little few years shy of that. Yeah. And it's it's more than... It, it's so weird because they don't have the technology. It's 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 a total pipe dream for them. Yeah. The first so-called test tube baby, which we probably should call a Petri dish baby. Oh. Right? Because I don't think they did it in a tube. Anyway. The so-called test tube baby was... Yeah. The first one was born in 1978. So, like, this urge isn't about technology specifically, right? Or the, I mean, the urge is about this discomfort. It's a discomfort with the consequences of sex for women. 
and what that implies for the society. Because obviously, like, it's the women who get pregnant, but that in, that that act implies a whole series of other things that in, in, that involve men too, right? And that use of the word immunize, mm. right? We wouldn't use that word to describe what oral contraceptives do, <laughs> but it's as good a word as any, isn't it? Right? Pregnancy as a disease. disease. Right, with children. as Oh, no, you caught a child. Like, you catch a cold. Like, get immunized. Yeah, yeah. And indeed, the sexual revolution of the 1960s really was, in large part, just as Olive describes it. Even that language. Women not being dragged down by her functions. Mm -hmm. Her reproductive functions, that is. Yeah. So, they're running from this thing. I don't really know why they're running from it. Are they running for it? Because if you don't run from it, the only results is that, like, you have all these kids and then just somebody just mows them down in a giant war? Is it just the fear of loss? Is it, is it, is that the, is it the fear of the all, we can produce all these humans, we can invest all these things in it, and all we get in the end is mass death? I mean, that, that sounds like... I mean, maybe. They don't articulate it They don't articulate it, but... But there's a, but there's sort of, like, almost an intentional shallowness. Like, I'm not gonna let my heart get involved. Like, it's a self-protectiveness. Yeah, no, it seems very Which seems like a trauma response, (laughs) Yeah, it seems very, like, driven by... Yeah. And, I mean, these... These are all... These are pretty young people. Mm -hmm. They're young... They're they're, they're obviously more mature than a, a given, probably, person of the same age would be in our culture, but it's their generation that all these victims have come from. Yeah. So they're the survivors. St- exactly. And so, so part of it could be like a huge background of survivor's guilt. Yeah. In a way. Yeah. Interesting. So, and just as soon as this, that relief is contemplated, there's this kind of collapses of meaning, right? The body goes from just being fun to being the source of wretchedness. And, and like those two wouldn't go together if these people weren't suffering from something. Yes. And then the and the answer to that wretchedness can only be answered by a restoration of the significance of the body, and so like this is where the novel is going to go because that's what the story between Connie and Miller's is yes. for both of them, yes. right? So Tommy Duke says later in the conversation, there may even come a civilization of genuine men and women instead of a little lot of clever jacks at all at the intelligence age of seven. It would be even more amazing than men of smoke or babies in bottles. Oh, when people begin to talk about real women, I give up, said Olive. (laughs) (laughs) Certainly nothing but the spirit in us is worth having, said Winterslow. Spirit, said Jack, drinking his whiskey and soda. (laughs) Think so? Give me the resurrection of the body, said Dukes. But it'll come in time when we've shoved the cerebral stone away a bit, the money and the rest. Then we'll get a democracy of touch instead of a democracy of pocket. So... So that's obviously, that is, couldn't be like, how nice that I've read the New Testament more recently. Because that's clearly <laughs> moving the stone away yes, from the tomb and showing that Jesus has been resurrected. I mean, it couldn't get more obvious than that, right? Yeah. And this is a very not religious book. I mean, no. there's really no mention of, you know, the religious context of England at the time. Like, none. It is like almost noticeably devoid of that. But it's using scriptural symbols. But it's symbolism. using scriptural symbol, like All the flames. Over. Oh, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So a democracy of touch. So now Connie's journey has a name, even if she doesn't really know what that means. Mm-hmm. Right? She's beginning to tire of the talk, talk, talk. Yeah. The novel is going in this very sort of hopeful direction where this resurrection is the resurrection of, of a belief that it is good to use sex to have children. And, like, not just good for the world, because they don't even really 
they're still sort of on the fence about that. Mm. But good for themselves to believe that this is their purpose. That's right. It's hopeful. Right. And so I, but, you know, as the liberal here, I gotta say, <laughs> I have a lot of sympathy for the reading that Connie's trajectory in this novel is ultimately very traditional. It's like reinforcing this, you know, the destiny of women to have children and, and that feminism is about challenging that narrative. Mm-hmm. But I'm not sure anymore that feminism really did women a favor when it told them that the choices were their functions or their freedom, mm-hmm. children or career. Mm-hmm. Because I think we now have the evidence that once this so-called choice takes firm root in society, the society begins to commit suicide. Yes. There is no historical example of a society recovering once birth rates fall below replacement. And many places in the world, most Western countries are already there. Yes. I mean, America is barely hovering. And it's really only because our immigrants have more children on average than we do. I think we have a higher religiosity than some of the other In general, places. yes, that's also so, helpful. But that's just like delaying our downfall. It's not going to prevent it. Right, right, right. <laughs> it's, so this fatalism about the world being unsuitable and already overcrowded, it's already here, yeah. 100 years ago, basically, in this novel. Mallers himself says, It seems to me a wrong and bitter thing to do to bring a child into this world. And later, and not have many children because the world is overcrowded. Hmm. He's saying that after the war, just... I know. All these I know. So what is... So that's obviously not about numbers, right? Right. So, so we're alive in this long wake of this old urge. The urge to, as I think Lawrence would put it, to choose money over touch. Yeah. To fear our own future. And not without reason either, but without children, there is no future for our species. I mean, I can't emphasize enough that, like, I always understood, like, the feminist freedom of not not having to get married and have a ch- and have children... Yeah. It was just for the outliers. It was just for, like, the small portion of women that just really didn't fit. Like, I think that maybe a better way to look at it would have been in the context of, like, women who would have gone to a nunnery. Yes, exactly. You know? Right. For them to have an option other than the other nunnery. Than, right. What important educational and aspirational right. leadership-oriented right. things can they do? Right. But I think, so I think there's a difference <laughs> between opting out of the mainstream and then... Or, as I think our society's done, is, like, redefining the mainstream. Exactly. Completely. Turning the exceptional into sort of the standard or the expected. Almost. Right. Into the aspirational. Into the sort yeah. of, you know, if you... It's sort of like that thing where, you know, the two-income trap with the housing. Like, if you if a couple had two incomes, they could buy a bigger house in a, you know, in a neighborhood. But once everyone did that, everybody was just working two jobs and all the housing prices caught up and there was no right. net benefit. And they've got two people with two jobs and they're still in the same small house and they can barely afford it. <laughs> right. Rather than them getting the they haven't They yet. haven't secured any advantage. That's and it's it. similar to... If the only option to have a career is that you have to either delay childbearing or have to like outsource the child rearing, then even if people don't want that, they don't have... The option's no longer there. That's right. And that's strange because, like, the purpose of feminism was supposed to be choice. Right. It was supposed to be the choice. So the choice, like, granting sort of the the technologies that gave the exception the option for that and the choice for that has ended up over time creating this feedback loop that has diminished the sort of the choice for motherhood, especially motherhood of big families or motherhood early becomes much, much harder to actually choose that unless you're really lucky or really rich. 
I mean, it just shows that, like in the situation with this novel, there has to be a force that is overshadowing and overdetermining this choice because mm-hmm. logically, it doesn't really make a lot of sense. Yeah. Um, it 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 just it just feels so weird that the stakes went from I should be able to choose what I want, then became oh, it's anti-feminist to want to stay home and raise my kids, like. Yeah. That's weird. Yeah. That's not good. That's not good. All right. Speaking of more things that are not necessarily good, let's talk about um, public virtue and private life. Okay. So Clifford and Connie are in discussion here and they're referencing coal miners who might go on strike. Clifford starts. What would be the use of their striking again? Merely ruin the industry, that what's left of it, and surely the owls are beginning to see it. Perhaps they don't mind ruining the industry, said Connie. Ah, don't talk like a woman. The industry fills their bellies, even if it can't keep their pockets quite so flush, he said. But didn't you say the other day that you were a conservative anarchist, she asked innocently. And did you understand what I meant, he retorted. All I meant is people can be what they like and do what they like, strictly privately, so long as they keep the form of life intact and the apparatus. Connie walked on in silence a few paces. Then she said, obstinately, It sounds like you are saying an egg may go as addle as it likes, so long as it keeps its shell on whole. But addle eggs do break of themselves. I don't think people are like eggs, he said. Not even angels' eggs, my little dear evangelist. <laughs> Gosh, she's so patronizing. You understand what I meant. <laughs> It's so direct, though. How refreshing. (laughs) This quote fascinates me because it speaks to an issue I am increasingly interested in. This false notion that public order and common culture have no relation to or no dependence on private life and personal decisions. Mm. I think we're in a space now in the world where we're finding out that there isn't really... There's only public virtue. There's no such thing as, like, private virue and... There's no such thing as public virtue and, and private vice on the in the background. Like right. they don't. No. Nope. <laughs> one can't come from the other. So Connie reflects on Clifford's view when she travels without him later. In Paris, at any rate, she felt a bit of sensuality still. But what a weary, tired, worn-out sensuality! Worn out for lack of tenderness, given and taken. The efficient, sometimes charming women knew a thing or two about the sensual realities. They had that pull over their jigging English sisters. But they knew even less of tenderness, dry with the endless tension of will. They too were wearing out. The human world was just getting worn out. Perhaps it would turn fiercely destructive. A sort of anarchy. Clifford and his conservative anarchy. Perhaps it wouldn't be conservative much longer. Perhaps it would develop into a very radical anarchy. What I find interesting about Lawrence's conviction that what is missing is tenderness, which I think you told me was one of the working titles of the book itself. Yeah is that this theme really dissolves the way we traditionally look at the relationship between sex and social order. We have conservatives blaming the pursuit of pleasure and liberals hearkening it as the core of human rights. But Lawrence's view is that neither chastity nor hedonism is the answer. He's trying to describe and advocate for a different kind of sensuality, a different kind of relationship between men and women that reflects and reinforces a different kind of social order. And necessarily what you think and do in private determines what happens in public. There is no addling the egg on the inside and expecting it to stay That's right. intact on the outside. That's yeah. a perfect metaphor. It really is. she gives. It is great. 
Yeah, I love that. Yeah, an egg may go as added as it likes, so long as it keeps its shell on whole. I mean, our culture has all kinds of phrases that capture this conservative anarchist idea of a complete separation of public and private. Don't ask, don't tell. Get a room. It's none of your business. Well, as long as it's between consenting adults, no one else is entitled to an opinion. You know, this is all that lie. I think of the way, you know, Democrats defended Bill Clinton in 1998 over his affair with Monica Lewinsky. He was, quote unquote, guilty of certain indiscretions in his private life, you know, but that's not impeachable, they argued. You know, Representative Nadler said, perjury on a private matter, perjury regarding sex, is not a great and dangerous offense against the nation. That sentence defines sex as a private matter, you know, and sexual vice as somehow not applicable to public character. You know, and then more recently... Not when a Democrat's in office, haven't right. you heard? <laughs> <laughs> right, but then, of course, it's true on the other side, right? Republicans have defended Donald Trump over Stormy Daniels, E. Jean Carroll, the Access Hollywood oh God, tape, oh you know, dozens of other sexually inappropriate things he's said and done, like way more than Bill Clinton, by basically ignoring their import, calling these things a distraction, right? Minimizing them. These are really just the same response made under the same assumption that the problem with these men is not that they were internally addled, but that they failed to keep their external shells whole and intact before the watching world, right? Their own political supporters could not admit that these are bad men. They could only admit that they were indiscreet, an embarrassment, not a moral failure. In case you can't hear it in my voice, that's bullshit. That is a <laughs> super elegant reading of that. That is so elegant. Those are, it's, it's just exactly the same thing. And, and with the Clinton thing, like speaking as a very young adult when Clinton won, <clears throat> there was this belief that you had to believe in his goodness because you were just so desperate for a Democrat to win. It really was that sense of blinded by your politics. There, I, I feel that with enough, now that there's been enough water under the bridge to look back as an adult, I really see that Democrats just didn't take it seriously. They were just yeah. too willing to assume that every accusation against him was just for political convenience. Oh my gosh, that's exactly what Republicans say about Trump now. Like, oh, they're just accusing him of this. He didn't really do it. It's, it's all attack, attack, attack. It's not based in reality in his character. <laughs> yeah, no. I mean, Same excuse. Yes. Yes. Same blindness. Same blindness. Yeah. And I, I can't remember where I heard this, so I can't properly attribute it. Maybe I heard it from you. I'll tell, <laughs> tell you. Me. I but it's this idea that the flaw of modern liberalism is that we want a publicly virtuous and ordered society while granting maximum private freedom. That we want public virtue that somehow exists without a foundation of private or personal virtue. I so mean, I think I that's that what you. Charles Murray says, right? The, the elites no longer preach what they practice. It's an addled egg with a whole shell, you know, but like Connie points out, addled eggs do break of themselves. So this is not a sustainable system. You know, government regulation can't make up for a lack of personal private goodness. Like it can compensate a little bit for a little while, but not entirely and not forever. Like if this system actually worked, then there would be no such thing as the loophole. This basically means it's the exploitation by privately vicious individuals of a well-meaning public policy, <laughs> right? Uh. Like, this is the thing. Vice doesn't stay put. It doesn't stay in the shell. Like, vice is never totally private. It leaks out. It changes you. And there's, so it's going to change other people. You know, at the very least, private moral failings can turn a person into a hypocrite and make them dishonest as they cover it up, which means that they are no longer trustworthy. And trust is an inherently social thing. It's the connective tissue between individuals and groups. You know, trust is a public good. And you can't have trust between untrustworthy people. And to connect back to your second quote on tenderness, like you can only have tender relations with another person if you trust them to treat you well in your vulnerability. 
So it makes sense to me that this kind of weary, tired, worn out world that Connie witnesses would turn destructive, that even sexual connection would cease to be tender and instead become cold and exploitative in a form of entertainment, like a way of getting what you want out of someone because there's no trust. You know, so like you said, Lawrence is imagining a different kind of relationship between men and women that reflects and reinforces a different kind of social order. And that order will have to deal with the harms that result from promising people that their happiness lies in maximum private freedom. Like that kind of freedom can't be a good in and of itself. It has to be subordinated to something better, to something higher. And I think Lawrence would call that higher thing tenderness. Like I might call it fruitful communion or solidarity or the ability to form lasting bonds. But I think we mean the same thing. This is really interesting because it makes me think, one of the things that I love about reading old books is that I'm just so constantly surprised at how things they say 100 years ago, we think, like especially when they're in Venice, Mm. And like, I mean, Venice of all cities gets constantly berated for how overfull of tourists it is. And like, <laughs> they have these huge cruise ships now that have docked there, which wasn't even really true 20 years ago. The idea that someone 100 years ago is describing like European capitals as worn out, it's like, and the world is overcrowded. It makes you realize that th- that is a psychological <laughs> judgment. I mean, there is a definite numerical environmental scale issue. That exists. I'm not saying it's that doesn't exist. But if they were perceiving the same worn out, tired, disconnected, too full, if they were perceiving that, if we were to go visit those places at that time, I think we would find them distinctly less crowded the way we think about it. Yeah. But so it must be that what those descriptions are getting at is much more psychological than it is it's interesting. numerical. Yeah. And I think if we put it together with what Lawrence is thematizing here, what it means is when you go to a place like that, it seems full and tired and worn out to you because you can't see any of the relationships. The relationships are all dissipated and abstracted and, and nominized. Like, you know... And that was happening already. At, it was happening already. Ago. Pre-smartphones. <laughs> Wait, yeah. Yeah. It was happening already. Yeah. And... and and the forces that were driving it were the same forces that are driving it now. The Jewish worship community that I visited when I was back in California, they're actually doing a co-housing. They're just, I just found out because the rabbi is actually going to move there. Oh. They're doing this co-housing project. They're building like a, a special, do you know what co-housing is? Well, you know what a kibbutz is, right? Yes. So a kibbutz is like total communal living where you yeah. basically share everything. Co-housing was invented, I think, in Denmark, I want to say, like, in the 80s, maybe the 90s, I don't know. But it's this movement where you have your individual house, and that, but your individual space might be smaller mm-hmm. because there's more emphasis on the communal areas. Is there, like, a common kitchen? Like, a common cafeteria? I think there, there are thing? common like kitchens. Common you might have your or... own as well, though. But, yeah. like, yeah, you have, a, you have a common kitchen, and you, you share meals, and there's responsibilities you share. and But you're just all... Yeah. You're in... You're more involved, like, you make a commitment to be more involved in other people's lives. And you can, if you're smart, you plan it, like, sensibly, where you have, like, multiple generations. Where you have, like, people with kids and people without kids, people who are younger, people who are retired. Oh, that's what people used to be doing since forever. Yeah, that was, like, called the original model of the human city. Right. Exactly. So it's like, that's not socialism. That was just, like, normal human existence until it got wrecked. (laughs) Right, right, right. And, I mean, most people will tell you that everybody practices communism in their own house. That's right. Communism I mean, is family life. Exactly. <laughs> That's right. It's just like, you know, you just get more and more, you know, it, 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 it's like every kind of modality of sharing 
has its place. Yes. And, you know, big C communism was the inversion of where it works. They were trying to make it work at the place where it absolutely doesn't work. work. That's right, because there's not enough love. Right, and it, Yeah. yeah, exactly. I feel like that is the model that actually undoes a lot of this stuff. It's this, you know, get involved and make a thing with somebody model. We think of raising a child as a completely individual choice, and some of that is because we live in a world where everything you do, you do it as an, you do as an individual. One thing changed the other, right? It's almost as if at the same time it became an individual choice, like a woman could opt out, the opting in also became something you did on your own. That's right. So the solution, if you view, like, human disappearance as a problem, mm-hmm. which is arguable, some people are like, you know, Extinction Rebellion, whatever. Did I, I forward you that article about... Like, pay people to have children. Yeah. Like, and it's like, if you calculate that over the course of a lifetime, it's, you know, a citizen will be worth in America roughly $8 million. Like, you know, who wouldn't want $8 million to raise children? And it's like, you know, the incentives could be so broad that you could have children for a living. And it's like, this is perverse. Like, yeah. that's weird. I mean, like, I get the sentiment <laughs> around it, but it's like, you're, that's. That's, like, just giving into the problem. That's right, because it's still about money. Because it's still about, like, this, this sort of um, cost-benefit analysis. Right. So it, that, that's the thing. Like, when you introduce this high degree of choice into family making, it becomes the calculus, the cost-benefit analysis, rather than, like, this is an act of radical hospitality to carry pregnancy and to have a child. But also, and it's, it's also just, a public good because everyone's involved in it. Right, like those things go together, and you take away the public, like we're all in this together nature of it, and you isolate it to the one family or the one woman, and then the calculus comes, and then the money comes, and then the shrinking families come, and like it's all, it's all connected. Well, and you know, when there was nothing to prevent babies from coming, or at least certainly not on the reliability scale that we have now, you had to build a culture around it because to try to build a culture around the denial of the arrival of babies would have been like anti-reality. Like, you yeah, couldn't build a cu- <laughs> You couldn't... It wouldn't work, because reality would, like, keep knocking on your door. Right. <laughs> like, reality would come right. mug you. <laughs> right. So, in a sense that... But now we can the build a culture changed. around that, because, like, I mean, that's what South Korea is ap- apparently doing. They have a culture built around, like, don't have kids. And, and it's right. real. They can really not have any kids. Right. I mean, and they have, like, speaking of rules of restaurants, they have restaurants that have, like, no children on the door. In South Korea? Yeah. Because, oh. they, because there are enough people now that are, like, not oh. used to being around children. Because children are noisy, smelly, disruptive, whatever. There's enough people who are just not used to it. And so there are enough, like, consumers who are like, we don't like this. We want to be able to have a child-free experience. No kids at this hotel. No kids at this restaurant. No kids on this bus. Whatever it is. Like, <laughs> Instead of banning smoking, it's banning children from this restaurant. Oh, like, wow, that's wow, wow. Messed that up. is relationship cancer for real. Yes! Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. Wow. I read that and I was like, wow. Mind blown. And that's such a spiral because I, I really think that having children is one of those things that's a mimetic desire. It's like, I feel like there's a statistic that was like, oh, if your sister or your best friend has a child, you are statistically more likely to have a kid in the next year, too. Well, like, all, des- all you know, desire is potentially it. socially contagious, <clears throat> yes. whether it's yeah. whether it's um, promiscuous gay sex or having children. It doesn't matter. The moral right. valence is not... Okay. It doesn't matter. That's right. That's right. Desire is good or bad. Desire is good or bad. It can be contagious because we're all... We all exist yeah. in the sphere of the nudge. Right, right. <laughs> and so the fewer children you have... 
that you know, then you don't yes. have the experience. Families of like yours become outliers. That's right. And in a in a weird way, in a way that is like not sending the right messages to exactly. people who, to repeat that. Exactly. Yeah. yeah that's right. Not sending, and then like like four kids was not even that much like in the 1950s and 60s. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, they probably would have been Catholics, but that's not your fault. <laughs> <laughs> True. <laughs> but still, I mean, like people who have who used to have three kids two generations ago now have one. Yes. I think the three yeah. to one thing is palpable because my mother's one of three. Oh. My husband's one of three. Yeah, it's it's definitely, you can see the step down in the generation. But of course, like, once you step down below one, you're, <laughs> you stepped off the cliff. Yeah. 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 And speaking of. Speaking of babies. babies. You know, who would you want to make a baby with is our next section. <laughs> so this has two quotes. Uh, the first one is Connie thinking to herself before her affair. <clears throat> Love, sex, all that sort of stuff. Just water ices. Look it up and forget it. If you don't hang on to it in your mind, it's nothing. Sex especially. Nothing. Make up your mind to it and you've solved the problem. Sex and a cocktail. They both lasted about as long, had the same effect, and amounted to about the same thing. But a child. A baby. That was still one of the sensations. She could venture very gingerly on that experiment. Well, there was the man to consider, and it was curious. There wasn't a man in the world whose children you wanted. Mixed children? Repulsive thought. Tommy Dukes? Well, he was very nice, but somehow you couldn't associate him with a baby, another generation. He ended in himself. And out of all the rest of Clifford's pretty wide acquaintance, there was not a man who did not rouse her contempt when she thought of having a child by him. There were several who would have been quite possible as lovers, even Mick. But as people to have children with? Ugh! Humiliation and abomination. So that was that. And then, this is like a hundred pages later, we have, (laughs) (laughs) after some experiences here, Connie has now been sleeping with Mellors, and clearly her attitude has changed. If I had a child, she thought to herself, if I had him inside me as a child, and her limbs turned molten at the thought, and she realized the immense difference between having a child to oneself and having a child to a man whom one's bowels yearned towards. It made her feel she was very different from her old self, and as if she was sinking deep, deep to the center of all womanhood and the sleep of creation. It was not the passion that was new to her, it was the yearning adoration. She knew she had always feared it, for it left her helpless. She feared it still, lest if she adored him too much, then she would lose herself, become effaced. She feared her adoration, yet she would not at once fight against it. She would give up her hard, bright female power, She was weary of it, stiffened with it. She would sink in the new bath of life, in the depths of her womb. And so I I love these two quotes because they they reveal what a transformation Connie's been going through. Like at first, sex is a cocktail. It's nothing. It's a moment of pleasure, like eating ice cream. But then once she connects sex back up with procreation, she senses that sex is a serious matter. This question, who would you be willing to have a baby with? (laughs) Who would you like to make more little versions of in the world? Like, that question ought to shape who you sleep with. Louise Perry says as much in her book, The Case Against a Sexual Revolution. I'm pretty sure she encourages women to use the fatherhood test when it comes to picking sexual partners. And it's not about telling everyone to have kids. It's about using the potential of parenthood as a heuristic for discerning who's worthy of your intimate self. I think looking at sex through a procreative lens is what Mary Harrington meant by the Mm -hmm. idea of rewilding sex, which we talked about in episode three on the pill. 
But you can also see from this section why Connie is so afraid. Her yearning adoration of Mellors raises a specter of slavery for her. She fears being effaced by love, fears sinking so deeply into this relationship and into motherhood that she would lose herself and become helpless. And I think that's a very real worry for many young women today. Like, I was kind of surprised to see that fear articulated here 100 years ago. Like, another way that I'm like, how did he, how did he read this? You know, how did he know? How does the fear get worse when we have birth control now? That makes sense. Isn't that strange? Yeah. Like, for some reason, I thought that that this fear was more recent than that. I thought maybe it was a reaction to the 1950s housewife, to the Fredan thing. Like, I didn't know that the fear was this old. I mean, I do think young women today have been taught to fear, you know, losing themselves to a man by feminism. Like, they've been schooled to protect themselves with their hard, bright female power. You know, which today we just call that hooking up and not catching feelings, Hmm. right? But this emotional distance, the fear and the fight to remain totally self-sufficient and self-contained, it doesn't make most women happy. You know, and there's this deep ambivalence in women about giving of oneself wholeheartedly to a man. Like Connie says, you become helpless. You become completely reliant on the goodness of the man you adore. You know, and what if he's addled inside, <laughs> right? What if his smooth white shell fools you, right? You know, it reminds me of that William Carlos Williams poem, The Red Wheelbarrow. I love this so poem. I, I wrote a, I wrote a version of it. <laughs> Based on this, so much depends upon the virtue of the man whom you adore and whether you can trust him. We're totally putting that on a show. It's a little <laughs> poem. That's adorable. Yeah, that's a great poem. It is. And like, when I was in high school, I read in a teen magazine a girl's account of being raped. And she described it as this need to protect her heart because she couldn't protect her body. That's a, that's a biological mechanism. Mm-hmm. Like, in, not only in... Like, contexts of, of sexual violence, but also just general violence. Any kind of violence. Disassociated, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, and yet she dissociated. She had this out-of-body experience. You know, she kind of described, like, hovering over herself and looking down at what was happening. Like, she was there, but she wasn't there, right? And because of that story, I had always associated the idea of distancing oneself internally from a sexual partner as a trauma response to rape. So it was strange to me to see Connie and... Teen Vogue sex advice columns, <laughs> you know, describe this inner distancing in a good light as a kind of female power. I'm like, that's that power. That's trauma. Like, that's a coping mechanism against being hurt. You know, and so to quote Louise Perry, loveless sex is not empowering. That's just a lie that the internal distance is power. It's not true. And I also want to touch on Lawrence's language. Uh, sinking deep to the center of all womanhood and into the depths of her womb. Like this is something that Connie had been frightened of, but once she starts to let herself go there, it's a source of incredible meaning and happiness for her. And there are many places in the novel where Lawrence describes Connie's womb as this active, yearning, discerning force. Like it becomes an organ almost as important to her as her brain. Like it has, it does all these actions. I mean, maybe that's sort of the romanticized bit. Maybe I'm sure it bothers some women. I liked it. I thought it was very interesting. Like, Mellors makes her womb wake up. And he does this through being kind to her femaleness in a way that is the opposite of sexual objectification. That's which, very true. Which is exploitative cruelty to a woman's femaleness. So here's, here's her description of it. There was something, a sort of warm, naive kindness, curious and sudden, that almost opened her womb to him. But she felt he might be kind like that to any woman, though even so, it was curiously soothing, comforting. And he was a passionate man, wholesome and passionate. He was kind to the female in her, which no man had ever been. Men were very kind to the person she was, but rather cruel to the female, despising her or ignoring her altogether. 
Men were awfully kind to Constance Reed, or to Lady Chatterley, but not to her womb they weren't kind. And he took no notice of Constance, or of Lady Chatterley. He just softly stroked her loins or her breasts. So Mellors is kind to her womb. Like, what? that's a fascinating thought to me. It's, I think it's key to what he's doing here. <laughs> <Yes>. Absolutely. <laughs> I agree. I think men should aspire to that, alongside being kind to the person. Like, I don't think those two things should be at odds. I think together they form a whole. But I, I liked his language about that. It struck me and it shows up throughout it's, the novel. It's different and it's it's necessary to... I mean, I think it is it is beautiful. It's obviously idolized. It's It's a kind of love story about it's a body love story about like archetypal bodies yes yes symbolic symbolic yeah because connie the person and mellers the person do not really fall in love with one another right so much as there is an instinct in them that draws them toward each other Mm -hmm. this yearning to create create the world anew through procreative sex Mm -hmm. i mean i certainly don't deny that this can exist outside of novels indeed i'd say that longing for a baby with someone is a common enough experience for women Mm -hmm. But the biggest question then becomes, how do we get to a place where women are not overwhelmed or faced by these mm-hmm. feelings? And in a rewilded world, their responsibilities, namely children, that these feelings bring. The reason this, is, this book works so well as a novel isn't just because Lawrence is a pretty good writer, but any attempt to like show the sex between them would fail automatically because, these, because the things that he's writing about, about their bodies, are very symbolic. Oh, and that's, it's, right. that's why it can't be a movie it, or a miniseries it's like, fail. Like, this is not about hotness. Exactly, exactly. In fact, Mellers doesn't seem to be particularly hot at no. all. No, he's Like, not. he's consistently described as not very hot. Like, he's a little skinny. He's a little skinny. A little pale. A little... <laughs> he's kind of, like, just barely escaped with his life from the century of horror himself, yeah. it seems. Yeah. It's, it's, it's very inner, these forces that are being unleashed in these two people. And I feel like one of the ways that we get lost, we, we lose that, is because we're always trying to put it on a screen. That's we're trying right. to show it. Yeah. And you can't show it because it's not an aesthetic thing. That's right. It's not a, it's not a hot actress and a hot actor having hot sex on a, on a rug in the hut. It's not, that's not what it is. Yeah, we're running naked in the rain. Or yeah, <laughs> right, right, right. It's, yeah. It, it doesn't I've... do that. It doesn't. That's why the mind's eye is the best place for this show. That's right. This is this is it's, <laughs> That's it's, a great way to put it. <laughs> it's like we need to we need to recuperate not only the what he's talking about this this renewing the world, but also just the modality in which that transformation takes place, which is your brain, not your screen. Yeah. Like they're connected. Yes. And so this book is about those feelings, and it's about attempt to make good on the responsibilities that come with them. But it's, and it's also equally a book about failure. Yeah. I mean, it's a wasteland, right? I mean, Mellors ha- also has to get divorced. And right. he has a daughter whom Lawrence, for like completely inexplicable reasons to me, names Connie. That's whack. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah, I know that like there were only like five names, but still, that's whack. <laughs> it's his daughter with his first wife. And like, he describes all the bad crap they got up to. I mean, oh, yeah. So the idealism, specifically the sexual idealism of the novel, really stands out, given that, like, for the rest of it, it's all this acknowledgement of messiness, this wreckage of failures all around them, in context big and small, I've already gone on about the forests, the mines, 
So, like, the big thing, the environment, the force and the minds, and then the marriages and the injuries, yeah. like, Clifford being, you know, exactly. broken and paralyzed and impotent. Yeah. So, I actually think it's a testament to your literary upbringing that you like <laughs> the novel so much, <laughs> despite not only its explicitness, but also its general acknowledgement of imperfection. Yeah. See, when you, when you say, oh, I thought it was going to be about, like, you know, purity and, like, like, I'm about to say the same thing from the other perspective. I oh. think this is something that our culture has really lost when it lost interest in story and in the nuance nuance of character as opposed to the fiat of identity we really begin to think of one another in two dimensions rather than three oh. like you think oh any novel that's going to be risque is going to condone adultery right. and i think oh she can't possibly like a novel in which the, re- the procreative sex is these affairs with people who have you know abandoning their children and <laughs> right. you know like you know, but, like, really, when we what? get down to it, we can all operate in a three-dimensional world. That's right. We all know that we're complicated people. Like, right. we can get there. But yeah. it's 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 art that has to get us there, right? And, yeah. And even the obscenity trial about this novel captured that two-dimensionality that was taking over our culture. Yes. The, the, I'd love to. I want to read the... There was a book about it that's linked to in one of the articles. And I, I want to read it. Yeah. Because it, it seems to be like it was... The trial was like, this is obscene, on the one hand, versus speech should be free, mm. right? Without any thought to why Lawrence felt he needed to be explicit. Right. That matters hugely. And it is not pornographic. It's just explicit. Mm-hmm. Or what the novel was really about at all. Like, what was the what were these, what was the sex in relation to? Right. Right? So in some ways, you know, the debate about what books to allow in school mm. libraries is a modern day reiteration of this. Yes. Except... That were in Lawrence's case, the purpose of the novel was just ignored. Now the books being argued about aren't even pretending to be art. They are literally just manifestos of identity that really have no other purpose than to establish a sexual form of expression as a statement of individual affirmation. So I am very much against censorship because it is the slipperiest of all slippery slopes when it comes to government action. Start there and you're going to find yourself on the wrong end. Yeah. And so I would never really advocate for banning books, even if I personally don't really want my tax dollars spent on putting these some of these books in libraries, and even if I personally can find no redeeming value to this like graphic novel-y type memoir novel explorations of teen sexuality, where it's like you know, it's not it's almost like the content isn't the problem. Mm. It's it's much more about the form, because it's not the sex or sexuality that bothers me. It's okay. the fact that it's not done within the context of actual literature. Yeah. It expresses no judgment beyond automatic approval. Mm. It has no moral universe except the one in which everything that makes you feel good, or even that you think should make you or will make you feel good, is wonderful. Mm. Mm -hmm. This is not only the furthest thing from literature that I can imagine, it's also the furthest thing from the banality of what used to constitute teenage consumerist pablum, like (laughs) Teen Vogue, for example, or Sweet Valley High. Yeah. Those books, those (laughs) magazines had no re- redeeming literary value. Yeah. Still, they had they were like harmless enough, right? Yeah. I, I literally cannot imagine what I would feel if I had a daughter and she was looking at a topless shot of a young woman who had her healthy breasts removed. And she's like she she is or looks like a teenager. Yeah, she So does. she's like the same age yeah. as these kids, right? As yeah. your kid is uh, thinking she is in her head. Like a 13-year-old yeah. thinks she's 19, right? Because mm-hmm. that's how those magazines work. Mm-hmm. Like Teen Vogue was like full of 20-year-olds who were being read by 12-year-olds. I mean, that oh, was, that's gosh. the way the market works, right? Yeah. So it's one thing to sell these kids makeup they don't need. Mm-hmm. It's another thing to sell them elective double mastectomies. Yeah. So like yeah. Teen Vogue 
never art, never literature, yeah. but it increasingly reflects this world where both are no longer welcome because art and literature require a world of moral foundation. Yes. And a moral foundation brings with it inevitably nuance yes. because moral creatures, humans, are complicated people. Yes. It requires judgment mm-hmm. being in a world of, like... And instead we have the market where judgment has been replaced with buy it if it makes you feel good. Oh, yeah. I mean, I would, I would way rather put Lady Chatterley's Lover into the hands of my 16-year-old daughter than Teen Vogue. Way At this rate, even with the explicit sex, I would much rather she read Lawrence than she read that Teen Vogue article you sent me, which we will put in the show notes. Oh like, God. oh my word! Wait, yeah, <laughs> yeah, no, it's right. frightening because of this. That, like you're it's saying, moral judgment. Like, there's right. capacity for right. a legitimate sexual awakening and, and thinking through moral issues, and you know, but that, but Teen Vogue is right. It's consumerist and it's propagandist and it's, it's aspirational anti-thought. it's saying you too can should must be like me novels don't do that no novels don't do that no they present a world and show people navigating through it yeah but increasingly the stuff that kids are being you know that's being marketed to kids doesn't mm-hmm. do that it's just, it's politicized. It's completely politicized. There's no nuance. There's only like this way is the way to be a good person. For a young woman to to have that done to her body, it's I I, can, I don't know how to frame that other than mental illness. I'm sorry, and I don't know how to frame a doctor who would do that other than like either completely craven or morally captured or something. I mean, yeah. Oh, the money in the machine. Yeah, a democracy of touch. I mean, it sounds downright like the way that it's that that is being perverted. It makes it sound mm. like downright creepy. Yeah. Because like, when the market touches you, it tends to remove your bits. <laughs> like right? I mean, you know. Yeah. Oh yeah. God! You know, and this just like the, the fact that it's being justified in the name of like human rights, like this right to flourish, when it's like. I don't even know. I mean, this, the irony is so, like, just if just, just going from, like, thinking about, like, Judy Bloom, you know, how they're all, like, trying to get their chests and... Oh, I must, I must, I, I must, must increase my bust! bust. <laughs> from that, yes. which was, I guess, which she wrote that book kind of early. I think it was written in the 50s. Was it really? 60s? Yeah, I think it was written I, earlier I than people at, think. I read that at 12 or 13. It was right. perfect. It was perfect. From that to, like, and, like, because those magazines are always read by women younger than they're officially targeted at. Mm. Like, Teen Vogue would have been, like, full of these fully developed women being consumed by these not fully developed girls. And and that was always the envy factor. It was like, oh, I want to be already grown up. I want to be hot like the model. And of course it's not realistic because, I mean, models are not only a very small percentage of the population, they're also photoshopped. I was never that kid. I never was really interested in makeup. I, I was never really that girl. But absolutely, even no matter how far you're in or out of it, you sense it as a model that some people are achieving. Yes. You can opt out because maybe you can't achieve it or maybe you're not interested in it. But like, no matter how distant you are from it, you sense its power. And now that the aspirational model is you can feel better by cutting off your breasts... Like, I can't, like, they just aren't words to express, like, because as bad as the other option was, like, looking like a supermodel and and 
wearing your cleavage in every outfit you wore. As bad as that was, at least, at least it honored the natural trajectory of a woman's maturing body. Right. Like, because we were going to get breasts. That's right. Our breasts were going to grow. We were going to... They're going to grow. They're going to be great. They're going to be beautiful. Right. (laughs) We're going to get... And young women generally, like, their bodies are beautiful. Yeah. Like... Yeah. They are. Because they're young and youth is wasted on the young. And, (laughs) like, there is this general... At least there was this, like, shred of... You were going to grow up. Your face was going to look more mature. You were going to look less like a... A child and yes. more like an adult. It was honoring at least a sort of like yes. this hint yep. of of um, reality. That's right. And now it is basically saying you shall aspire to destroy your natural body. Oh, it's iconoclastic. Ooh. Yeah. Ooh. Is that what that word really means? I mean, to the, to the destruction of the icon. The icon being the symbol that, you know, some of this a fleshy created thing that points you to a beautiful transcendent reality. So the iconoclasm is like cutting that out and rejecting the, rejecting the image as communicating some beautiful truth, Ooh. you know? So breasts are great. Why? Breasts <laughs> they are communi- great. They communicate. Men connection, love breasts. Nurture. Also. <laughs> also. Yes. You, I Everybody mean, should love breasts. Yeah. No. And they, and they definitely, they communicate nurture. They communicate giving from your own body. They communicate abundance, you know, like, yeah, to both men and to babies. Like, they communicate all of this self-giving and delight and connection, embodied connection, mm. bond, bond. I mean, mother and a baby, like a nursing baby, like, that is a bond, you know? I'm sure many men are bonded to their <laughs> their wives' breasts, too. Like, it, it's, a, it's a beautiful thing. It's a, breasts are inherently relational. They speak to the relationality of a woman's body. So to cut them off is an iconoclastic, like, relationally destructive, no, I will not be a giver of myself. No, you know, like, I'm sure that is not consciously anywhere in women's My hard, bright womanhood, yeah, no. Right, but again, but, like, speak on this sort of symbolic level. But it like, is, that's but, what's the, but the, sim- the symbolism that of, like, the overwhelming, but that, it's just like you can see the war as a specter mm-hmm. in these people, and these young people's... Like, yeah, it's this, it's this anti-relational, I'm only me for me. Yeah. It's a trauma response. It's a trauma, it's, well, and it's a trauma response that the trauma isn't even, like, necessarily, like, a mass cataclysm like the war. The cataclysm seems to be this kind of ethos of, you know, buy my way to happiness or construct my way to happiness. It, It, the cataclysm is just... The cash register. I mean, like, it's like, it's so banal. It's like, right? I mean, oh, God. It's just so sad. I just, I don't understand why it's tolerated. I don't understand why it's tolerated. I I don't, I don't get why people aren't, well, they're not building barricades. Like, I I don't know. I just. Barricades to protect the breasts. Barricades (laughs) to protect breasts. Yes. There's an image for you. (laughs) Save the boobs. <laughs> save the boobs. We might need to end on that note. I think we need to, need to save boobs. Save, save boobs. Save your boobs. <laughs> Should we make t-shirts that say save boobs? <laughs> we might have to. Might that would be considered to. transphobic. But yeah, mm. we should make t-shirts. Mm. Wow. 
Okay. We'll probably have to. This is only part way through. This We've got part- more thoughts, but we need to. I think we need to pause for now, and we'll we'll come back we'll come next back. time with more. Read your read Lawrence, everybody. Yeah, in between now and the next one, get your copy. <laughs> your unexpurgated copy. It's unexpurgated. <laughs> enjoy it in the privacy of your own room and and your and the imagery of your own mind. That's right. Yeah, don't don't watch any of the. There's some you know don't there's some versions out there. Don't watch the movie. Don't <laughs> don't, don't watch do the mini series. It's going to pornify it, and this is oh. not porn, so oh. enjoy your imagination. Okay. All right. Okay. See you <laughs> next, next time. time. <laughs>